Good morning, everyone. This is Ray Otis, and you're listening to Plundergrounds. It's a beautiful morning here in San Diego. The sun's shining in the side of my car window as I podcast outside the coffee house, which is my usual habit. And uh, morning feels a little bit like a miracle to me today because last night I was drinking a bitter cocktail of imposter syndrome, anxiety, maybe a twist of nihilism in there. And, uh, you know, I turned on Forged in Fire and watched people beat on swords for a while, just tried to forget about it and write it out, get some sleep. And, yep, the sun came up, and things are better, and I feel good. And uh, it's just the way it is sometimes. Uh, I don't know why I'm divulging all of this to you, but I did uh, put it out there on my social media platform that I wasn't feeling so good. Not really looking for thumbs ups or likes or whatever, but um, mostly just to get a little distance on it. If I type it out, sometimes that makes me um, be more aware of it and aware of it in a way that kind of removes me from the problem just enough that I can get a little perspective. And uh, there's a kind of a power in claiming your problems by putting them down in words. And of course, I did get some nice pats on the back and, um, you know, thumbs ups and keep going um, kind of responses from my friends and uh, my online friends. And it um, it did help. It does help to kind of know that other people are out there and that they care about you and that they are paying attention. I try not to abuse that. I don't want to be that person who's constantly complaining online, but, uh, you know, it, sometimes you got to Sometimes you got to put it down and let other people know how you're feeling and accept whatever help they have to give gracefully, which is tough for me. Uh, so at any rate, thanks everybody. And I'm better <laughs> for now. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think we all have this, you have your ups and downs. It's mostly chemical for me. Uh, meaning I'm just, you know, I'm 51 and your body changes. And for some reason, um, you know, it seems to want to, uh, attack me now and then attack my brain. Uh, and I just have to, I just have to be aware of it and uh, understand the triggers and and cope with them as best I can, you know, get some exercise, get some sleep, eat well, that kind of stuff really helps a lot. It does. Um, you don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it because exercising sucks, but, uh, I mean, why am I walking if I don't have any place to go? Like, uh, and can't I just take a car? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm, all, I'm off on a tangent. You know what? Let's get this episode started. Uh, today is a call-in show, mostly. I want to talk a little bit at the end about my plans for 2019. Uh, but first up, we have my friend Angus, who's been running 5e games for us for a couple months. And a uh, really nice little campaign world that he's built on his own. I want to get him on sometime to talk about that over the Christmas break here. And uh, Angus is going to talk about spotlighting and what Colin Green of Spike Pit uh, calls sourcing the table, which I think is a great phrase for it. And I will tell you that Angus has a lot of chops in this regard. So when he says something, you can believe that he also practices it. I've been watching him GM now for a couple months, and he is very subtle and graceful about how he brings a lot of this stuff about. I know when I move the spotlight around, I can be uh, a little violent. <laughs> I smash cut and, uh, you know, pause people right before they roll or right after they roll um, and then move to somebody else. 
to kind of move it around a little bit. But, uh, you know, Angus does it in a way that I'll, I'll be playing and all of a sudden I realize he's done something and I'm thinking, you know, hey, wow, he just did something there. Uh, but I never noticed him doing it and I can't point to the the moment when he turned the fiction to a new player, you know, turned the spotlight to a new player. Um, so he's very clever at this and he he does give each player plenty of opportunity to kind of input into the fiction. But again, I'm going to get him on the podcast. I want to talk to him about it. So here's Angus. Listen up. Hey, Ray, this is Angus. Loved this past episode on balance. I have to say as a GM, uh, judging that body language around the table is critical. So getting to your point, I agreed 100% with respect to play mechanics, storytelling, and just having a great time. Uh, With that I'm always wanting my players to tell their story, uh, emotionally invest in the game, uh, solicit them for background, and then be able to riff off of that. So that is that is gold when that happens around that table. So I guess a critical skill uh, with respect to striking that balance for a GM is the ability to multitask, uh, make sure no one's getting bored around the table, that everyone is continuing to feel emotionally invested in that particular session or campaign, and the results are just fantastic. So I'm always looking out for those rust monsters. See ya. I'm glad that Angus brought us back to the topic of balance for a little bit because I was reaching for a point in my last podcast and I missed it. Uh, it. It eluded my grasp. When I brought up Indiana basketball, you may have wondered what I was talking about. I, I got a little of it across, but let me explain what where I was going with that. In Indiana basketball, uh, there was a turning point around the 90s when we moved to a class basketball system. A class basketball system means that uh, small schools played small schools and big schools played big schools, and there were multiple state championships. So you could be the champion of your class. And uh, the, 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 before that, we had a single-class basketball system, which meant there were no classes, uh, and every school played every school mostly by geography. So you would play all the schools in your county, and if if you, uh, during tournament season, if you beat those, then you would move on to regional and sectional and whatever um, until you got all the way to the state championships. And if you won the state championship, you were the undisputed best high school team in Indiana. And that was cool. That was really cool. And in 1954, a little town called Milan... And I'm going to sidetrack here for a minute and make fun of Indiana. Uh, Milan is a, a town of a couple hundred people, and it's spelled M-I-L-A-N, uh, much like the town Milan is spelled. <laughs> Indiana has a number of small towns that are named after famous locations and uh, places elsewhere outside of North America. But we have hoosier fied them. Um, you know, to make them all our own thing. So Milan becomes Milan. Um, we have a town called Rusheville. Maybe that's not the worst one. Uh, we have a town that used to be f- referred to as Peru, um, but somewhere in the 90s, um, it kind of changed. Now most people call it Peru, uh, P-E-R-U, Peru, but most people used to call it Peru. Uh, we, of course, have the very famous college, Notre Dame, as opposed to Notre Dame. And worst of all, I think, we have a town called Versailles. Yes, spelled like Versailles, but not pronounced Versailles. 
Versailles. And if you ever said Versailles in Indiana, um, people would look at you either mystified or uh, very loudly correct you um, that it's Versailles, not Versailles. So this little town, Milan, uh, did exactly what I referred to earlier. They worked their way up until they got to the state championship. And, you know, keep in mind, this is a school that had only dozens of kids to pull from to build their five-man basketball team and and bench. Uh, And they were in the state finals against Muncie Central, a town of thousands, probably tens of thousands at the time. And they had, of course all kinds of kids to draw from to build their, uh, you know, their team. And so nobody thought that Milan could uh, beat Muncie Central. But of course, they did. The little guy won. David beat Goliath. You know, they toppled the giant. And it became Indiana lore. um, And people will remember that forever. I recommended last podcast that you watch the movie Hoosiers if you want to get a sense of what Indiana basketball was like in the 50s, uh, 60s, 70s, you know, going into the 80s. Um, and uh, I, I still recommend that. It, it seems a little corny if you watch it, but they really did a good job of capturing the spirit of what Indiana basketball felt like at the time. And I think that in D&D terms, the history of class basketball Reminds me a bit of the history of balanced encounters in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you knew I was going to bring it back to this at some point, right? <laughs> um, so when you think about uh, challenge ratings, for instance, as a, as a specific term, when did that come into the systems? Uh, I think it came in at third edition. And please, somebody call in and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the notion of balance was probably there in its rudimentary form in the very early days when you think about dungeon levels and how they're uh, nominally supposed to get harder as you move down from one level to the next, although that wasn't a science or even uh, something that the GM had to do. But it was um, part of the mindset, I think, at the time, uh, the kind of unwritten uh, rules. Maybe written somewhere. I don't know if I... Um, can point to a specific reference. But that wasn't balance. It did, however, give characters a chance to kind of think about what challenges they were putting themselves up against. Uh, so maybe they chose not to go down a level um, until they were ready for it. Well, in third edition um, and forward, at least, it became an instruction to the game master that they should consider the challenge rating of monsters and compare it to the average class rating of like a four-person party and try to make encounters so that were within the reach of the party to be able to beat. In other words, they wanted to make them, quote-unquote, fair, um, a fair fight. Well, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> did you catch the sarcasm there? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's great, yeah. Really great. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, to each his own. If you love balanced encounters, I'm not going to tell you you're doing your fun wrong. I I mean, if your group, that's what they want, awesome. Go for it. Have your fun. Um, I would encourage you to think about it, though, and uh, consider letting David meet Goliath at least now and then because you're missing a story potential. Now, you know, characters can always run. They can always choose to run away if you're a party of first-level characters and you run up against a giant minotaur wizard. Uh, you maybe think, you know, this guy's probably above our reach. Let's get out, get the heck out of here before we get blasted. Uh, but if you choose to or you're just desperate enough to give it a shot and you win, I mean, you, you're probably going to get beat nine times out of ten. But if you do win, 
you know, you've got a story to tell. And early D&D was much more like that, where um, it was a push-your-luck game. Players could decide when to um, go back to, well, they, <laughs> they, they, they could, I guess, decide when to go back to town. They might be deep in the dungeon and find that harder than they thought. But, you know, basically they could uh, make all kinds of preparations and they could attack the dungeon or, or whatever a wilderness adventure had been set up. And if they knew when to quit and get back to town and replenish and rest up, um, they would survive. Sometimes they went a little too far um, and made, you know, made the way back a little too hard or put themselves up against an opponent that was just a little out of their reach or a lot out of their reach and died. <laughs> or won, right? But that was the point. That was a character choice. They, they made that choice to go up against something. To remove that choice from them to say, basically, you can run, wander around and do whatever you want because in the end, um, all your encounters will be either you know, your, of your level or a level above you or a level beneath you um, so that everything's a fair fight. So don't worry about it. Eh, eh, that's eh, whatever. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so, I, and, and I'll, I'll say one last thing. I mean, again, if that's if that's fun for you, great. It's not fun for me. Uh, I don't necessarily need my encounters to be balanced. Uh, but I will say that if you're looking at the game to balance, I, I think this is the point I was trying to make in the last podcast, really. If you're looking at game mechanics to provide balance for you, it ain't going to happen. Uh, you can do the math and you can create balanced encounters, uh, quote-unquote, fair fights. But there's always... Well, it's a very loose game. It's a very broad game, and anything can happen, and you have a lot of control as a GM. And it, it could be uh, one little thing, like the monster's immune to damage from non-silvered, non-magical weapons, or I suppose that's not such a little thing, or um, it's got a uh, paralyzing touch or something like that. That can really go south on a group really fast and has nothing to do with challenge, challenge rating. Uh, and that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's awesome, but... Uh, it, it can also happen the other way. Sometimes, you know, a character that seems like it's extru- extremely lethal, um, a party member pulls out just the right spell or the right sneak attack or whatever and takes it out of the fight prematurely, and you are gearing up for a huge battle, and, and the character's just straight up um, stomped on them and, you know, spit down their neck after they rip their heads off kind of thing, uh, you know, and just made it nothing as a combat. So, well, I'm starting to ramble. Um, but the point is you can have everything balanced in the mechanics and then still imbalance will creep in either through random factors or um, through your styling as a GM, how you uh, use the creature. I've seen GMs, myself included, take very dangerous creatures and play them very vanilla, um, probably just because you get tired and you kind of forget to like pull out all the stops and, and try uh, cool you know their special attacks and stuff like that. So you can take a dangerous creature and, and uh, with your GM style, make it pretty weak. And you can take a weak cr- creature, uh, like a goblin, and with your GM style, you can make it incredibly dangerous by having a bunch of them set some sort of trap or ambush the party when they're low on resources, um, or you know, just thinking dangerously. So don't look to the game to provide balance. Uh, and don't worry so much about balance. It will work itself out. Broadcast the dangers to the players. Make sure they understand uh, what's going on and how lethal things appear to be. Uh, and then just let it roll, man. Just let it roll. <laughs> okay, I'll get off this topic. No more about balance, I promise. Uh, and um, I would promise no more about Indiana basketball, but I'll probably break that promise. So, uh, you know, in Indiana, it all comes back to basketball.
Hey, guess what? Turns out that you all like hobgoblins as much as I do. So here's some more thoughts on hobgoblins from listeners. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, Ray, it's Cody. I was um, listening to your most recent episode this morning and again just now on my way home. And I have to say, there's a lot to unpack there, man. Um, I I do enjoy the format you picked up recently where you're kind of picking a handful of topics and going into each of them on one show. And that's something I may adopt in the future. But um, I do think it's um, a more interesting or interesting or interesting, (laughs) interesting take on uh, Hobgoblins that you brought up. Uh, especially pulling things from Wizard of Oz, which I think is, you know, uh, to me anyway, better flavor than the, the current edition of Hobgoblins, where they're just kind of big, broody oafs. But um, anyway, I uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'll be listening again, taking some notes, and I'll call you back probably on it later. But keep it up, bud, and I will catch you later. Hey, Ray, this is Angus. Again, loved your past episode on balance, and particularly on those Hobgoblins. I have to say, uh, my interpretation of Hobgoblins, uh, ever since they were introduced back in advanced D&D and <clears throat> original D&D, were essentially, I thought of Orakai. And in addition to Orakai, uh, Orakai that could do magic. Uh, so basically, you know, very engaged, uh, multifaceted uh, creatures. Uh, and more in like the Orakai vein uh, than the standard goblin. So with that, Ray, I'm still looking out for those rust monsters. See ya. Hi, Ray. Colin Spikepit. Really enjoyed your episode with your Wizard of Oz talk and um, the business of hobgoblins. I'm a big fan of hobgoblins. I've got a prominent one in my current current campaign called Leopold Nibs. He's quite the dandy, really. He's um, head of a mercenary um, war band and he's looking to establish himself as a kind of noble he he dresses in flamboyant silks and wears a headscarf and he he has an interest in theatre and acting and is very flamboyant character um not quite sure how he come about i think it was some random maze rats roles but it it seemed pretty suitable and you know he's really intelligent and really kind of um clever and quirky And I think hobgoblins are perfect for that sort of thing. But uh, great one. Catch you later. That is awesome. And now Leopold Nibs will be in my campaign world. (laughs) I just stole him. You didn't trademark him when you had the chance, so now he's mine too. Uh, you know what? I, I love hearing about people's cool NPCs, uh, even definitely more so than their characters. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you about one of mine. I have a halfling called Harlan the Halfling, and he's king of the sweeps. And the sweeps are a, a nominally a gang of chimney sweeps, halfling chimney sweeps. They live on rooftops. They make little huts on people's rooftops. And it's considered kind of lucky for um, one of these halfling families to build on your rooftop. And uh, But they're excellent roof runners, and they're really good at throwing 
things. Uh, so their primary method of defense is to get high, uh, not get, well, <laughs> to, to get high up on top of things, <laughs> houses, and not get high in terms of do drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, run away uh, on rooftops where people have a hard time chasing them or to catch people in cul-de-sacs and stone them to death, you know, by uh, surrounding them and throwing rocks down on them. But the more nefarious side of this is that the sweeps are essentially a mafia. Uh, they have a very strict code, um, a very strict hierarchy. Uh, they are um, excellent second story men, so they tend to rob places from the roof, you know, from roof access. So if you need a job done um, and there's any potential of going in through the through the top, then you call that the sweeps in. Um, and the sweeps will often demand protection money from uh, places. So it and they are they play hell with city guard, man. City guard can't do anything about them because they can't follow them up onto the rooftops and they can't you know tear down houses or demand that houses don't have roofs. So they mostly just ignore them. And there's kind of a uh, you know, many cops on the take, many, many guards on the take, as it were. So I really carried over that mafia idea and made, uh, I've kind of, I think I have a soft spot for halflings. Uh, I know that not everybody likes halflings and I think it's just because, you know, uh, well, like I, oh my gosh, I hate the halfling drawings in D and D fifth edition. I was going to say people don't like halflings because they just think of them as, you know, butterballs, um, <laughs> big, big roly poly jovial, uh, creatures that are, about luck and cooking and whatever, uh, and that's underselling them. They can be quite interesting if you treat them as little people, um, intelligent, clever, uh, people that exploit the margins of humanity, you know, with, uh, and you make the most of their size. Uh, so I, that's, that's where I went with that. Harlan the Halfling. Feel free to steal that one back from me, Colin, and, and we'll make a trade. Harlan for Leopold. All right. This isn't exactly a call-in, but Daniel Fowler on Google Plus posted something that I thought was really excellent, and he references me, kind of mentions uh, something from my podcast, and so I felt like it was okay to read out a bit of his post and uh, my response to it, because I think it's important. He makes a really good point here. He is an excellent thinker, by the way. I don't know if you follow Daniel Fowler on Google Plus. Um, unfortunately, that platform is about to die, so I'm not really sure where he's headed from there. But his posts always make me think quite a bit. And here's what he has to say. And uh, the, the podcast he's referencing will become clear uh, in, in reading this. Today, I want to talk about players volunteering character details and talents. I've thought about this in the past, but I recently listened to Ray Otis's podcast, Plundergrounds, where he mentioned a situation where a character who wasn't a bard and had not previously described themselves as having musical talent should auto-fail and attempt to play the piano, or maybe to play it impressively. I highly recommend the podcast. It might be misunderstanding. I'm not trying to call out anyone and don't believe in any one true way to RPG, but I have to differ slightly with that idea. I would probably find it delightful if my barbarian player, Kurg the Skull Smasher, suddenly revealed a talent for song. And who's to say that the thief hasn't had dealings with all sorts of unlikely customers and speaks fluent drow? I want to learn more about their stories, especially the unlikely and unexpected bits. I generally don't approve of anything but the briefest prepared backstories at character generation, but I think reveals like this are great places to explore the characters more and mesh them with the setting. I agree with that 100%, Daniel. I think that's an excellent point. 
Um, and I appreciate your referencing uh, my podcast and, and the kind words about my podcast. I uh, do. I don't think you misunderstood. Um, maybe the maybe what I was saying was a little bit more complex. And the idea that um, as a GM of any role playing game, not necessarily Dungeon World, maybe uh, least of all Dungeon World. Um, when a player tries to do something that's just uh, too far out of the realm of possible, given what we know about him in the fiction, that as the GM you might exercise your option to just, just have them fail. And uh, I would stand behind that, but you did make me think about it and the kind of uh, variations that you could play on that that might be much more interesting at the table. And here was my answer, uh, beginning with uh, quoting back a, a bit of Daniel's uh, writing here. Quote, I would probably find it delightful if my barbarian player, Kurg the Skull Smasher, suddenly revealed a talent for song, end quote. I love it. Yes, I often let people reveal things through questions. On the other hand, if a player initiates trying something and doesn't lay any groundwork at all in the fiction, I may just make a move and say, yeah, you fail. I should say that my podcast isn't specifically about Dungeon World, but I don't know if I would react differently even in Dungeon World. Here's how I see it. If a player said... Kurg walks up to the piano. As a half-orc who grew up with a human mother, he fondly remembers watching her hands as she played his favorite melodies. In the moment, he feels like maybe he can pull this off if he can just imagine her hands. As the GM, I might say, Hell yeah, you do it. Tell me about it. Or I might say, Yes, you get started and it's, it's actually working. You're playing. And then you become aware of the fact that you're playing a piano. You're doing it. And you kind of freak out. Roll plus intelligence to concentrate on your memories and shrug off any doubts. On the other hand, if a player said, Krug walks up to the piano and tries to fake it, I'd probably say, yeah, that goes about as horribly as you would expect. <laughs> I suppose I might say, do you want to roll to see how it goes? What is it in your background that makes you think you can pull this off? So that was, that was my response and, uh, you know, really outlines three different uh, ways to handle that skill role that seems relatively impossible. The, the first way is to um, consider what the player says in the fiction, how they set it up, and if they make a good effort to set it up, if they make a great effort to set it up, maybe you auto-succeed. Um, if they make a good effort, um, or at least bring it into the realm of possibility, maybe you um, let them partially succeed and then have them roll to see if they can keep it up unless they've already achieved something by just partially succeeding. Um, and you, um, or you might just say, no, you fail if they don't do anything to set it up at all. Um, or you could... Uh, or you could help them out and uh, say, "Well, why don't you why don't you roll for it? Let's see how it goes." But first, tell me something that you think will make this possible. Like, what 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 is it that um, you think that what what led you to try this as a character um, that you thought you might pull this off, <laughs> or did you expect to just not pull it off? And uh, so those I, I really didn't sort of outline the three responses there. What I meant was. Uh, you could consider the, if they set it up in the fiction, you could just approve it or, or base your response on how they set up in the fiction. Um, if they don't set it up in the fiction, you could just auto-fail them. Um, and if they don't set it up in the fiction, you could also invite them to set it up in the fiction. Um, so those are kind of three responses. Um, give them give them the, the fiction that they worked with. Um, uh, if they don't work with the fiction, 
um, you know, treat, treat them accordingly or um, help them work with the fiction. And probably the best of those three is to help them work with the fiction. Actually, maybe the best of those three is the first one because you have a good player at the table who knows how to work the fiction. But um, if they don't know how, maybe it's your, maybe this is a teachable moment where you say, no, why would you try that as a character? You know that you, you know, do you have any reason to believe that you're going to succeed at playing that piano? Tell me, why would you think you could succeed at that? And we'll see what they come up with, right? Like maybe they come up with something really good in that moment and then you uh, go back to your first proposition, which is maybe you just have a to succeed and you say like, that, that's awesome. I want to see that happen, right? So <laughs> this this idea of a half-orc who, um, you know, is very maybe very martial and, and uh, uh, forceful and, and you know, br- uh, brutish in his manner, um, that he maybe had a human mother who was, you know, who played piano for him as a child. And then he could reach back into his memories and capture that, that could be really entertaining at the table. Uh, and if it's that entertaining, sometimes you just put it in because it's too good to let it fail. Right. Um, or it's, or maybe that moment of, uh, him losing, you know, like starting out really good and then losing control <laughs> because he overthinks it. Um, and nothing in his life is built around overthinking anything. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe that's the good, maybe that's the good moment. Uh, there's lots of good moments there. And, and I think maybe Daniel's point overall is, uh, auto failing is probably the least interesting of all of those outcomes. And you're probably missing something, uh, if you don't do something with that moment. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think it was a really good point that he brought out, and I'm, I'm glad that he uh, posted that so that I could read it out here on the podcast. Daniel uh, said that he would have called in, but he hates the sound of his recorded voice. Daniel, I can tell you we all hate the sound of our recorded voice. <laughs> I hate the sound of my voice recorded. I try not to listen back to it too much. Uh, and uh, don't worry about it, man. If you ever feel like calling in, please do. I would love to hear from you. It's that time of year when you can't help but look forward and think about how you might want to do things differently in 2019. For me, I'm going to look backwards first and say that uh, 2018 was a pretty good year for me creatively. I put out this podcast, have 20-some episodes out there. I did a couple issues of Plundergrounds, the zine, not as many as I expected to do. I uh, put out a little game there and back again, uh, which is really, I think finished at this point. I need to slap the version one Oh number on that and call it a day. Uh, but I don't think it was as good as 2017 was for me. And 2017 was a good year because I had goals and a schedule and I stuck to it and achieved what I wanted to achieve. It was the year I introduced my Patreon. Um, it was the year I introduced the Plunderground zine, And I wanted to get six issues out, and I did that over the course of 12 months, uh, starting in February of 2018, or 2017, I mean, when I released the free version of Ape City. And I wanted to end the year in the black, meaning I wanted to at least break even financially um, in terms of all the art that I paid for. For me, the real win there was not money. Um, It was being able to put out a creative project uh, of my own with, uh, put it in its best light by having artists that I admired who were doing really cool work alongside my text. So I was able to achieve that and that was amazing. And I did that through the support of you all who uh, were on my Patreon and have been on my Patreon for a couple of years. I really appreciate that. I'm still kind of mystified that people hand me money to do things uh, in this, uh, in this cool hobby that we have. But uh, if we all, uh, if you all appreciate 
if y'all enjoy what I'm doing um, and want to contribute, that's amazing to me. That's fantastic. Um, if you don't, that's also amazing and fantastic. I get it. Um, not, not everybody can afford it financially, even little sums like that. Not everybody wants to put their credit card information online. Um, not everybody likes Patreon. So be it. That's cool. You'll still get a lot of this stuff for free. So here's what I'm doing in 2019. Let me walk it down for you. Um, the The big three things are the Plundergrounds uh, Patreon, the Plundergrounds podcast, and my jellysaw.com blog. Um, so we'll start with the podcast. I'm going to do uh, podcasting all year, just like I've been doing uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm committing to doing at least one podcast a week. I want to do a Monday and Thursday release every week, so I'll probably do two a week. But in terms of my Patreon, I have promised one a week. Uh, so that's, that's my commitment. And if I do that, I can declare a victory. If I do two a week, great. Then, I, then it's, a, uh, you know, it's extra. Um, okay, so my Patreon has gone to $1 a month. So if you want to support me, it's $1 a month for as many months as you want to, including one or none. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically for uh, $12, if you were going to be a Patreon for the whole year, for $12, you're going to get four zines, uh, one each quarter uh, plunderground zines they are uh, based on dungeon world mechanics but there's not so much mechanics in it that they wouldn't be uh, something you could use with really anything you could play with any 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 tool set you wanted really uh, and they will be 24 to 32 pages each okay fantasy art that kind of stuff um, you know just like they've been and I have plenty of ideas, and I have two almost finished already. So for crying out loud, there's be that'd be easy to get four out for next year, right? Um, I'm also putting myself on a creative schedule to do those, which I'll talk about here in a minute because it was the it's pretty close to the schedule I used for making the zine in 2017, and I think it might be useful to some of you to hear. Uh, so four four zines, uh, 52 podcasts, as I mentioned, at least one a week and at least one micro game. I usually put out two or three uh, games within a year. I've got a kind of long string of those micro games that I've written. So there and back again, uh, which is based on the 1937 edition of The Hobbit, is the most recent one. Uh, before that, uh, there, were, uh, there was Goblin Town, Space Trucker, Flash Fantasy, Sorcerers and Swords, Unspeakable, Raishishima 3113, um... Packworld is sort of a mini game. Uh, yeah, at any rate, there's, there's lots of little games that I've put out. And I've got more. Oh, The Pyramid. That was probably my very first one. The Pyramid uh, was a postcard-sized game that uses only one D4, and it was for a little competition, I don't know, probably back in 2015, something like that. So uh, some of these I'm going to brush up and put back out. Uh, but uh, I've got, I usually put out a game or two a year, and you'll get that. So there's the deliverables. Four zines, 52 podcasts, one micro game for the $12. Um, or for any fraction of that you, you choose to produce. And, and uh, I, the only thing I try to reserve for my Patreons are the zines. But I've even got a tier out there. Right now I'm around $200. So I'm going to end up, I think, about $200 a month in my patronage. Um, if I get to $300 a month, I am going to release everything of mine, all my text and my art, meaning I'm excluding art by other people because I can't you know, do that for them. Uh, I'm going to release everything that I produce under Creative Commons Attribution. Uh, what that means is that it will be free, and all you have to do if you want to use it is to give me credit as the originator of that work. 
you can make you will be able to make derivatives. Um, you will be able to uh, take the art and use it in your own stuff. Um, use bits of the text and build on it. Um, you'll be able to make books that you can publish and charge money for. You know, because I'm not putting on the non-commercial or share-alike um, limitations. It'll just be attribution, uh, Creative Commons attribution. Now, you can't do that today. It's all under copyright today. Uh, and, and I'm reserving rights to uh, publish and, you know, like an annual and sell it if I want to. Um, although Patreons will get a coupon for uh, buying it at cost if, when I, if and when I get that done. Uh, but, uh, but if I get to that $300 level and it all becomes essentially free for everybody. And I would love to hit that. Um, that is not something that scares me by any stretch. Um, I think that would be fantastic. Okay. So that's, uh, that's my new goals for 2019. As far as the creative schedule for the zine, again, I think somebody uh, out there probably would like to hear this if they, if they're building their own zine, how I do it. Uh, so I spend one month in the formulation phase, which means putting all my ideas together in, and organizing them in a way that makes sense, identifying all the parts that I want in the zine, and really putting together a solid first draft. At the end of that first month, I do what I call a soft lock, um, which means uh, that everything's in its place and I don't intend to add anything. Um, and if there's any pieces there that I've identified I need, I've at least written a draft of them. So if it's a monster that I need, I've written the monster. If it's a move that I need, I've written the move. If it's a piece of introductory fiction that I need, I've written that introductory introductory fiction. It may not be perfect. It may not be exactly what I wanted, but it's there in draft form. It's not just a sentence that says put you know, introductory fiction here or make a monster like this kind of thing. It's it's actual, you know, final version. And in some ways I could, you know, it's at that point, it's almost enough that I could just sort of shove it out with some, if somebody wanted to read it, uh, they could certainly read it and see where the art goes, that kind of thing. I do use placeholders for the art. Okay. So then, um, after the soft lock, I look where my placeholders are for the art and I commission any art that I need. If there's holes there, uh, and I know I'm not going to provide the art myself, then I look around for who I'm going to work with. I make the offer to them, tell them what I need, tell them what I'm willing to pay for it, get an arrangement, um, and give them a few weeks to, to get that done. Then I take a break. Uh, I, I go off and do other things for a little while. Maybe I think about the episode after that. Um, if I get an idea for the current issue, I just uh, jot it down in a notebook somewhere. And uh, after the break, then I can come back to it and start revising. You need a little bit of distance, right? So it's me trying to get uh, put, put it out of my mind for a little while so I can let new ideas uh, kind of seep in and uh, get a little distance on it. Then I come back to it and I start doing revising and I'll do, you know, three or four passes through the thing, uh, laying over new ideas and making things richer and rephrasing text to make it a little more evocative uh, or, uh, you know, just overall making it a better read and more useful at the table. I'm really concentrating on, uh, you know, what it is that'll make this thing work at the table. I often in this phase will play test it, uh, get it, get it to the table myself. Uh, if I don't get it in, the, in this phase, I usually do it in the following month, but it's really not helpful to do it after this because I'm uh, at the end of this month, at the end of that second month, I do a hard lock on it, meaning everything's in its place, everything's in its final form as far as I can tell. I've inserted all the artwork that's come in 
And, um, unless I'm waiting on a piece of art or something like that, it's, it's basically finished at that point. So at the end of the second month, I've hit that hard lock. Um, I again, take a little bit of a break. I start assembling ideas for the next zine. Um, I promote the zine that's coming out, the, the one that I've got a hard lock on and, uh, you know, share some things about that with people. Uh, and then, um, I will do one final pass through as, uh, as an editor and really trying to catch any typos or, um, any little errors. I will sometimes do a little bit of revision in here, but it's really lightweight stuff. It's, it's really just, uh, you know, I have a sentence there that's awkward. And so I'll, you know, redo that sentence. Uh, it's very rare that I would pull out a whole paragraph, let's say, and replace it or a whole page and replace it at this point. I'm mostly just tweaking and polishing. Okay. And then I release it. I will release it at the end of that month. In 2017, I condensed all of that into a two month cycle. Um, and and so in 2019, I'm going to make it three months, and I think that'll work out really well, really well. Um, should give me plenty of time to do it, but not so much time that I don't get things done, if that makes sense. Uh, so I'm excited about that. If you have any further questions, if you want to know more about the process, um, I'd be happy to talk about it. One of these days, I'm going to do a podcast on collaborating and working with artists um, about, you know, we'll talk about pay, expectations, deadlines, but we'll also talk about how ideas flow back and forth when you describe something that you need and then you get a piece of artwork that isn't quite what you described, um, whether you go back to the artist and make them change it or whether you you incorporate that into your text. I usually do the latter, by the way, spoiler alert. But I have a lot of things to say about that. And maybe I'll get an artist on to like Juan Ochoa or somebody who I work with regularly to talk with me about that. Uh, I think, I think I'm done. I think this episode's probably already too long as it is. I apologize if it has been a little rambly in places. Uh, I've been trying to deliver good information and, uh, well, it is what it is, right? So hope you enjoyed it. This is Ray Otis signing off. You've been listening to Plundergrounds. The opening and closing music is You Can Use by Captive Portal. And as always, you can find links to everything I do at www.rayotis.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S, Rayotis. Until next time, look out for Rust Monsters. Oh, 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 oh,